0: Imagine living with no light, no power, and that there is no electricity for any health, education, or community services in your region. 760 million people, more than the entire population of Europe, still lack access to electricity and are using products such as kerosene and candles to light their homes. Energy poverty is an issue where off-grid solutions can step in. Off-grid solutions provide the fastest most cost-effective and impactful way to reach most people who still live in the dark. In the last 10 years, more than 300 million energy-poor people have been reached with life-changing solar solutions, and that includes solar lights, home systems, irrigation, and cooling systems. These solutions are improving health, safety, and opportunity for families across the developing world powering small enterprises, boosting agriculture and lighting clinics and schools, all while reducing millions of tons of CO2. Yet, the financing that the sector receives still needs to at least triple. So far, impact investors, DFIs and governments have been key to reach 300 million households. To achieve sustainable development goals, though, We need coordinated action among development partners, investors, governments, financial institutions, and companies. Welcome to Invest in the Sun. I am your host, Laura Fortes, and this podcast will reunite investors and industry experts to provide their experience and expertise to improve our understanding on how to bring more funding for the upgrade solar industry so that we can reach one billion lives by 2030. Invest in the Sun is a limited series podcast hosted by GOGLA, the Global Association for the Off-Grid Solar Energy Industry, and is supported by GetInvest, a European program supported by the European Union, Germany, Sweden, the Netherlands and Austria. Welcome to a new episode of Invest in the Sun. Today, we have two guests that have worked in energy access for quite a long time and represent two different development finance institutions that have had a deep impact in the development of the off-grid solar sector. DFIs have had a very predominant role in energy access. Only their direct investments account for 30% of the total value of direct investment since 2012, according to GoClass data. The amounts devoted to indirect investments are unknown, uh, but have been estimated at at least $100 million. And as I say in the podcast, I think this is uh, an underestimation. DFIs have invested debts, equity, and grants. And this conversation dives a little bit deeper into what the role of DFIs should be, according to those that work uh, in the development finance institution. DFIs help as market makers of the industry, and we will discuss where their investments will be more catalytic in the next years to come, so that we can reach 1 billion lives by 2030, hopefully. I am honored to be joined by Maite Pina and Geoffrey Manley. Maite Pina is the Senior Investment Officer at FMO, and she has over 18 years of experience in the clean energy sector covering investments, advisory, and project development with a focus on emerging markets. Geoffrey Mindley is the Investment Director and Head of Energy Access and Efficiency Team at CDC. In addition to providing catalytic finance to companies, Geoffrey is engaged in cross-cutting initiatives to promote the sustainable development of the energy access sector. So welcome, uh, Maite, and welcome uh, Geoff. Uh, thank you so much for participating in, the, in this podcast today. Um, I think the first question I'd like to ask you both um, is uh, what got you into energy access in the first place and why solving uh, this issue out of all the other uh, development challenges that there are in the world, you are working in this? And then then perhaps let me start from my day.
1: Um well, Laura, I've been working, I think, in the energy sector it was my first job. So, over 22 years focusing in the sector. I'm not a banker by background, but practically an energy specialist. And it was around mm-hmm. 2013 that I started, or 2011 that I started to look at issues with accessibility, the role of the on grid sectors to provide access and other opportunities within the mini grid sectors, as well as the off grid systems. And as such I tried to start moving my career to move more towards Africa um, and development institutions and that's how I ended working first with oil credit and then with FMO uh, and I think when you talk about uh, why focusing the energy access of SDG okay it's a, it's a catalyzer right it's the one that you need to mobilize many of the other mm-hmm. SDGs and for me I look at uh, mm-hmm. energy electricity as water as a public good you do really need to have that I mean, that is for me a basic human right, and that is the one that is catalytic to economic development, to agriculture, to health, to education. Nowadays, I mean, you know, without access to electricity, I don't think that we could kind of mobilize the, like the, the SDGs.
0: Yeah, that sounds familiar. I think we've heard that uh, a few times and we advocate mm-hmm. for that uh, as well ourselves. And I think it was uh, Ban Ki-moon that said that energy is uh, the golden thread that connects uh, um, yeah, the rest of of the development. And Geoff, uh, I'm curious about uh, your story.
2: I wish I could say that it was sort of by design, but it was actually a bit of an accident, to be honest. Um, So I had been already working in development finance, focused on Africa for quite a while, and more involved in like utility scale, project finance type transactions. And actually, um, in about 2014, I think it was Andrew Riker, who is the name that people may be familiar with, very active angel investor in the energy access space, uh, and a friend of CDC, and he sent a proposal for one of his investee companies, and it somehow landed on my desk. And I was, um, I knew more or less right away that there was no way that CDC was going to be able to invest in this company because it was much too small and too early stage. But I was absolutely fascinated by the business model that I had never even heard of before in this combination Mm -hmm. of technology and mobile money to somehow bring this solution. So I just found that really, really compelling and interesting. And then a couple of years later, um, CDC was having discussions with Uh, then DFID, now FCDO, about Mm -hmm. increasing our capital and giving CDC an opportunity to invest and take more risk for development impact. (laughs) And I had the opportunity to develop a strategy um, around uh, initially just very much focused on solar home systems and building actually on a lot of work that had been done already within DFID um, at the time. And we were able to launch a strategy in sort of 2017, 2018, and we've since expanded that to include uh, other segments of decentralized energy, but still, solar home systems and 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 paygo business model is is very much central to um, to our strategy. And that strategy was also. Um, you know, it's kind of the through line of our strategy was to focus on local currency, Mm -hmm. which we felt was kind of missing in the market at the time. And clearly the companies were a bit too risky to attract local bank financing. So we wanted to try to sort of fill that gap um, until, you know, hopefully the market scales and, and you see more commercial banks coming into the sector.
0: Absolutely. And I'm I'm curious that so you also know each other, right? And also, like, I I think you mentioned before for a long time.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to remember. We were just joking because we met on actually a, a dirty fossil fuel <laughs> project <laughs> um, that we we didn't ultimately end up funding. Um, yeah, but, indeed.
1: Uh, yeah, at that time I was advising the government. Uh, I was in a different, completely different role. Although I think Jeff yes, you were playing the CDC, but it's just you know it's part of the history it's the part of the evolution right we need to actually to understand the the sector to to know what is missing and I think that's that's when you you know when you go through all the phases you practically have a much better understanding of how to deploy the what's needed today
2: but yeah it was interesting yeah. times. and then I think we kept in we kept in touch you were at oiko credit yeah. and then and then fMO, FMO.
1: Yeah, and I have to say that from the FMO perspective, it's not like Jeff. Jeff started practically the sector within CDC, but FMO has been a pioneer, you know, right, since 2013 with the first investment in Waka Waka. No longer in the market, <laughs> but it was one of the first investments that we did. And I think since then they have seen the importance of the sector. And we created the Access to Energy Fund from the government. And so it has been just since then, is taking a much more important role within FMO. Uh, I think that's within FMO now at the We not only want to focus in the hungry sector, but to put much more emphasis to distributed energy going forward.
0: Cool. And and, and I'd like to go a little bit more um, in depth with that, uh, Maite, and the, and the role of, of FMO, and then Joff will... Like to touch upon the CDC, but yeah, but just uh, ha- I mean, really good to have you <laughs> both as as uh, as advocates and supporting the sector now uh, instead of uh, your previous uh, <laughs> your previous life in other sources <laughs> of to... energy. Um, but but yeah, <laughs> the I mean the role of um, and this is the name of this podcast. Like to you know the role of DFIs in the sector, and it has been uh, very fundamental. Uh, Especially from the early stages, and we're celebrating a decade uh, of experience in the sector now. And uh, yeah, both FMO and CDC. I mean, there are um, you've made several. I mean, types of investments, right? And and that's the role of DFIs. Eh? And there are direct investments made in the sector and supporting specific companies, such as. Uh, your example, Maite, Waka Waka, and there's also, you know, such a big role for DFIs to to make indirect investments in impact investors, in uh, funds, uh, debt providers, uh, etc. So, I mean, it's quite catalytic, uh, the work that you're doing. And yeah, I'm I'm just curious, Maite, um, where do you stand right now as as, as, well, yeah, as FMO, I guess, putting your FMO hat on now? Um, yeah, what, what is the role currently of FMO in terms of direct uh, versus indirect investments?
1: I think, well, we continue supporting indirect investments, right? So we have already practically over 70 million in indirect investment related to the energy access funds. And at the same time, we started doing more direct investments a few years back when we saw that some of the companies had grown sufficiently to need a substantial amount of capital. Because what we have realized is that most of the intermediaries or the indirect investments, the focus was initially to provide this small capital, small capital, right? And the small, I mean, below 5 million, even below 10 million, right? So because we realized that FMO, I mean, the transaction costs for FMO were too high. To, in order to provide that. And as well, it was a way to try to to catalyze other investors together and working and developing these entities. Uh, and as of today, I think that our role has developed to help these companies to grow further and to provide local currency. Mm-hmm. I think I agree with Jeff. For us, we saw that there was a need for local currency. Uh, and at the same time, we co-invest as well with some of our investee funds. We're trying to look for co-investment, discuss the markets, discuss companies and see how we can collaborate. So I think that funds are going to be needed. I mean, the sector is quite big. I mean, what is clear for me is that there is still a financing gap and among all of us. We need to find ways to resolve that financing gap and some of these indirect investments are helping to bring additional capital outside the DFI's market. Cool.
0: What about CDC?
2: I think um, our exposure into energy access is um, weighted more towards direct investments Mm -hmm. although we do have investments in six private equity funds that have invested in the energy access space Mm -hmm. some of those are specifically focused on energy access but others are for example more generalist infrastructure funds that decided to invest in some of the larger solar home systems companies. So we have seen that trend happening over the last few years. Um, In terms of our strategy, initially, we thought that we would also be supporting some credit funds. That was definitely part Mm -hmm. of our strategy. But given our focus on local currency, which we wanted to be consistent across both direct and indirect investing, we found that it was difficult to find the right context to um, provide capital through an intermediary that would go out to the end borrowers as local currency. So that, that was a bit of a stumbling block for us. And one of the reasons why we haven't um, been as active on the credit fund side.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And yeah. I mean you have already quite a bit of experience uh, in the sector. The select as I said, uh, sector is celebrating a decade. Um I'm very curious where do you see the biggest opportunities and the biggest gaps? And this is a big question, right? But maybe <laughs> if you could select uh, yeah, just one opportunity and one gap that the sector needs to 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 overcome. Um Joff, continue with you. Well.
2: Um, well, I guess maybe, maybe one opportunity to highlight is that I, I still think that there is a huge opportunity, um, around increasing productive use. Mm -hmm. And I say that, and I should, I would like to caveat because I think in, in some cases people talk about productive use and it's almost, um, to say that, you know just providing that basic household energy access is somehow insufficient and so we need to we need to do productive use for for this to be you know really mm-hmm. impactful and i completely disagree with that i think it's already amazing what these companies are accomplishing mm-hmm. in terms of providing basic access um but i do see that there's an opportunity to further extend that um, to help people to increase revenue generation There are some very obvious applications, I think, in the um, ag value chain, which is obviously very important um, across much of Africa. And, you know, starting to see some solar home systems companies offering that as a product or some of the standalone productive use companies. Um, So I think that's. That's a big opportunity um, that the sector can can build on and help people address and actually increase their productivity and, and incomes.
0: I'll continue with the opportunity before we move on to the to the to the bigger gaps. Uh, Maite, what's what's your take there? Actually, it is
1: the same. We have already started looking at uh, productive use. In fact, it's um, a must to do. For us is uh, ensure how we can increase productive use how we can help how we can develop uh, other products uh, because when we have realized as well that it's really nice to talk about productive use but it's a completely different product it's more expensive how do you bring that product to the market how do you help the communities mm-hmm. to use to realize the benefit of that product right and i think that is it's a scope of work that is beyond the advice and it's more to work with all the stakeholders together to try to, to develop further this sector. But I think it's key because, as Jeff mentioned, I am pro-access and, you know, many times I've been even question, well, what about they're getting a TV instead of a fridge, right? I think everybody has the right to, to have their TV if they want to. I mean, it's a social aspect and it's the basic needs that they are just elementary. That We now need to find products that help to develop economically the, the region. Uh, and that's why productive use, mainly for agricultural irrigation issues, we think that is quite beneficial.
2: I mean, maybe just to throw out another opportunity um, that occurred to me, I mean, I, I still think there's huge scope for geographic expansion. When yeah. you look at the market, it is still, after you know all these years, incredibly geographically concentrated. Um, mm-hmm. And if you look at the amount of capital and the deployments that you see in East Africa relative to the rest of the conf- continent. Um, you know, there's, there's just a huge gap and there are reasons for that. And maybe we'll get into that later. Um, you know, challenges in getting to some of the smaller countries, um, or with, you know, challenges in the enabling environment. But I do think that we need to find a way if we want to come anywhere close to achieving SDG seven, we need to find a way to serve many more markets as quick as possible.
1: I think what I have been missing has been a greater collaboration between the public and private sector. And I think that we have achieved much more in relation to SDG 7 is that we have much more collaboration. And we probably will have been already working much more frontier markets, right? So I'm currently looking at different uh, countries, even including Gabon. And when you look at these countries, it's like, you know, how is the collaboration? Is there the risks that are there, right? So, uh, and I think that's the main gap that I see. It's lack of collaboration, lack of proper regulation. Uh, as you mentioned before, some changes in regulation that affect companies and you know affect the deployment of uh, products. And that is mm-hmm. one of the key areas that I would like to resolve. Is, is in general, not only for the office telephone system, but also for mini grids uh, for the energy sector in general. We need much more collaboration.
0: Yeah, and, and when you say that, I guess like it it, it relates to like you know policy. Um, yeah, issues.
1: it's policy-driven and, and as well, as willingness, policy and willingness sometimes is, you know, it's, uh, we are too much politically driven. Uh, and the fact is that uh, we need to start prioritizing what the real needs are and how to deploy that at the lowest cost to the final consumer, right? And I think that sometimes we forget that. And that's where I've seen some of the gaps because it is to access the last mile is the much more, it's the most expensive. Part of that, right? It's not the product; mm. it's the distribution, and the distribution in Kenya is not the same thing that the distribution in Togo, the distribution in Gabon, or in this type of frontiers market. And that's what makes things unaffordable and um, what it makes
2: complicated. Complicated issue.
0: Jeff, I'm, I'm gonna ask you that same question.
2: I mean, this is maybe kind of an obvious answer, and it's it's a complicated issue that then you know incorporates a lot of a lot of different factors. But I think. The biggest challenge that I see for the sector still is the fact that, you know, as a whole, it's not profitable. Mm-hmm. And until that is dress, addressed in 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 a much more rigorous way, that's just going to put limits on the growth of the sector and the potential of the sector. And it, you know, I have no doubt that um, DFIs and donors will continue to promote the sector. For the impact, but in terms of actually turning it into a truly sort of commercial sector that will start to fly on its own with, you know, the bulk of capital coming from commercial sources, then that's, that's the, the, the key that needs to, to be solved. Um, and obviously, you know, that's a very complicated question and there are lots of issues embedded in that. Um, but yeah, that's the main thing that I think the sector as a whole needs to address.
0: It's also something that's not unfamiliar uh, <laughs> uh, to Google either. I, I would like to take uh, just uh, one step back about uh, um, the role of DFIs. And uh, Maite, you already mentioned uh, some numbers in terms of indirect investments. Um, um, I mean, there are so many opinions, like, and I have read some, some so many publications that go out uh, that talk about what the role of DFIs should be or should not be. And there's like so many opinions on that. So I'm I'm just very curious, you know, like you know, is it direct investment? Is it indirect investments? Like should you be supporting platforms for local currency? Should you be supporting, um, you know, uh, later stage uh, market and facilitating exits to the early stage uh, investors? You know, like there's all these opinions around <laughs> uh, what the uh, FI should be doing. And I'm just very curious to hear from you. Um, what do you think the role of DFIs should be to support the market today, and then how do you see DFIs, or um, in this case CDC or FMO, in the next uh, five to six years uh, once you know the market's a little bit more developed?
2: DFIs have and will continue to have a really important role to play. I think, as Maité said earlier, when you look at you know the funding requirement to achieve SDG 7 and the amount that's being invested currently, there's a massive gap. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the funding is already coming from DFIs, whether it's being deployed directly or indirectly. And, you know, that's that's an important role that we should continue to play. What my hope is that we will start to see more companies becoming profitable. I think Mm -hmm. You know, we are starting to see a few examples of that, that those companies will start to attract more commercial investment. And then DFIs can let the commercial market increasingly serve those customers or perhaps collaborate with commercial banks during a period of time um, to sort of facilitate that transition. And then I think it will be our job to continue to focus on the sector and promote You know, maybe some of the mid-sized companies now, um, Mm -hmm. different business models uh, to continue to support innovation and areas of the market that are still, you know, perhaps perceived as too risky for pure commercial investors.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I totally agree, Jeff. And when we look at, I always say that the role of FMO is financing and mobilizing capital from third parties. So that's the way we have tried to do so is by looking at the indirect investment. And direct investment, collaborations, uh, providing first loss for other investors when required, to trying to cast in. But the key aspect uh, is that if the companies do not reach profitability, it becomes much more difficult to, to get uh, interest, right? To get a real interest in the, in the market. But at the same time, I think that it's probably a question on how we define profitability and how we separate the business and the distribution versus the financing, right? Because, uh, I mean, we as DFIs in the debt side, we have been focusing mainly on financing receivables. And sometimes, you know, what is the risk that we're taking there and how those risks can be extrapolated from these companies? And that's why I think that going forward, more collaboration with local banks is essential because they are the ones that know the market. They are the ones that are starting to know the clients. And that is where I think we could try to help more, to promote more that type of investments in collaboration with the local banks of balance sheet.
0: And I have... One, a little bit trickier question here, and and I have heard this, you know, whenever we have a Google event and whenever, you know, we do one of these investor sessions and investor panel, and then you're together with other investors. I've I've heard this, I think, a couple of times already, and we put you on the spot then, and I think I'll put you on the spot again. Uh, Do you think um, you're crowding out uh, other investors? And I'm I'm curious to hear, yeah, what what do you do to, to avoid that from happening?
1: Well, the answer to this question, as I've called this thing, is no. And on the contrary, we do really try to collaborate with our <laughs> investees. And we do have, uh, oh, quite often I have calls with some of my investees to, to discuss the market, to discuss some of the companies, to see where we can mm-hmm. collaborate. Unfortunately, because of COVID and other, matters, the last year we have two, three projects that couldn't go ahead in collaboration. Uh, we, as well, trying to focus in a different segment, a slightly larger investment, so mm-hmm. we don't really want to go into the small investments. We believe that these are more, more suitable for these intermediary um, debt funds than for us. And I think, as I said before, there's there uh, a huge market. We need much more capital, So and I think what is important is collaboration. Uh, it's not about crowding in or out. It's about collaborating and see what is the most suitable capital for each type of product.
0: Geoff, do you have any insights on that one?
2: Well, I think, as Maite said, you know, there's a there's a huge funding gap. So, um, you know, all all of the capital is needed. Um, I guess, you know, it's definitely a real issue and one that we try to take very seriously, um, not just in energy access, but across all of our investments. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure it's the same at FMO. Um, I think. Specifically in energy access, one of the ways that we've tried to address that again is by focusing on local currencies. So in terms of mm-hmm. our direct uh, investments, we have not um, deployed any capital in hard currency. It's all been local currency, and certainly when we looked at the market, you know that just wasn't really um, wasn't really available. And I'm happy to say that now I think it it is more available. Um, but, uh, that, that was, you know, a way to avoid competing perhaps with other investors that were providing hard currency loans. Um, but as I said, I mean, I'm, I'm very confident that we're not crowding out any commercial banks mm-hmm. for example um we have spent a lot of time reaching out to various different commercial banks to see how we could collaborate with them i mean we do fortunately with fmo have mm-hmm. one good example which is our facility for mcopa uh, which was led by uh, stanbic and and so that's one great example but you know quite honestly i wish there were a lot more of those um but it's just been very difficult to get local banks to to be interested and um, get comfortable with the the credit profiles. So I'm very confident on that front that we're not crowding out commercial banks. I guess maybe where there are some more questions and criticisms are around some of the energy access focused impact funds. Mm -hmm. They are raising capital. Again, a lot of it comes from DFIs, um, but from other sources as well. And um, I think... There, you know, we just have to be mindful of um, not underpricing the market, again, focusing primarily for us, at least on local currency, um, which is an an area, I think, where um, there's less... uh, capital available. Yeah. Um, so, you know, really trying to target those segments of the market that uh, are underserved in our view. And also, I think another differentiator is um, is being able to offer scale. I mean, the, the you know, w- w- I said earlier, we're not very good at investing in small companies, but I think where we have a comparative advantage is deploying larger amounts of capital, we will tend to have larger balance sheet um, Mm -hmm. than, than some others. And so we can take on some larger tickets Um, that that may be difficult um, for some of the others.
0: I think, you know, according to our predictions, at least the amount of funds that need to come in the sector need to be multiplied by three. And that's, (laughs) when we look at it, still uh, quite an optimistic number. And, uh, yeah, in the past years, uh, we see the investments coming in the sector, plateauing, like, you know, it's not increasing much. And we see uh, the same investors on the table over and over again, which is great. Um, but we need uh, so much more. Um, I would like to move on to. I've read, you know, like a few solutions uh, on 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 how to catalyze uh, off-grid solar, how to catalyze this market. And um, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to throw these, you know, theoretical solutions that I have heard over time um, working at Gogla. I'm going to start for the first one. I think. <laughs> We've touched upon this one, but companies need to achieve profitability and become cash flow positive.
2: I think I gave away my response earlier. I mean, <laughs> I think this this is um, this is definitely a game changer. But I think we need to be clear about what profitability means and what it looks mm-hmm. like for these companies, mm-hmm. given the Pago business model, which is just inherently. Um, very, uh, it, it consumes a lot of working capital. And so these companies will have permanent working capital needs. They will uh, they will carry debt much in the way mm-hmm. that, um, say, a microfinance institution does on a permanent basis. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, we need to get to a point where they are not, um, you know, sort of constantly uh, in need of a fresh, equity round almost on a yearly mm-hmm. basis um, to sort of remain in 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 operations. Um and to the point where they're generating enough cash flow to service interest on debt. Um but you know that debt will need to be there on on a more or less permanent basis and the more they grow, <laughs> the more they will need.
1: Yeah, I think I completely agree, right? Profitability is required in the sector. Um becoming cash flow positive is, is not an issue, right? As the Jeff has mentioned, it completely right? Uh, when we're looking at the financing, Is uh, I think that for me, I'll, as I look at these companies, I try to separate the technology and distribution versus the financing, against the financing. So they really need to work on that uh, in trying to set up the proper unit economics to understand what the final cost of the consumer is.
0: Yeah. Let me let me move to the next one. Um, concessional finance needs to be targeted at the early stage companies and at nascent markets. What are your thoughts on this one?
2: I do. I I, I think that, um, that. I mean, there's a reason that companies have focused on a narrow range of markets today. And that's because of the scale that they're able to achieve in the enabling environment um, that that allows the business model to function and so as i said earlier i mean i think there is a huge opportunity to expand the model into new markets but there is a reason why the companies are not um, all targeting those markets because there may be challenges um they may just be too small um and so uh, you know, that's probably something that may not just happen organically mm-hmm. and there may need to be support for that to happen. And I think on on early stage companies, I mean, when you look at the first generation of solar home systems companies, they all benefited from mm-hmm. from grant support mm-hmm. uh, and so, and and some still do. Um, and in some cases it is tied to new markets and and things like that. Um So I think we can't ignore how important that was. Um, And I think, you know, a lot of donors and foundations deserve a lot of credit for supporting this market to get to where it is. But uh, I think it's relatively harder for new companies, early stage companies today to get access into that grant capital that was so critical than it was, um, you know, five, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, I do think that's an important aspect if we want to continue to support innovation mm-hmm. and new business models and market expansion.
0: Let's, let's move to uh, one that uh, I think we're working on uh, quite closely at Um a stronger link between climate change and the off-grid solar sector will enable a new wave of funding. What are your thoughts on this one, now, Maite? How far are we from that?
1: well i may be a bit naive but i hope that this is the case uh, however not so optimistic in the short term in the next 12 months but i see this morning the medium term, two to three years time in which uh, financial uh, institutional investors are gaining more momentum they are starting to understand the sector uh, there is a bigger push right now for paris alignment for decarbonization uh, even corporates are looking at how to green in the companies, how to be more social responsible. There is opportunities to look at new products like carbon credits within the sector or social credits. How to monetize this uh, credit as well might be a way forward. So I think that we can see new products being developed, but it's true that it's going to take some time. And, and having said that, I, have, I was speaking uh, one month ago with a bank that is actually looking at setting up a new fund. It's like mixed mm-hmm. products, because sometimes I think it's diversification of the products. If you set up a fund that is only focused in our system, the risk might be quite high. But if the fund is diversified, you might have more institutional investors coming, right? And starting to learn about the sector. And I think that mm-hmm. is a way to try and to bring them more closely. And another way is, of course, for DFIs to try and to work with them to see how we can develop products and how we can help them, right? So as I said, we cannot mitigate the risk 100%. But it's our role as well to bring them into the
0: sector as far well as commercial. Geoff, do you think? Yeah, do you agree with that? And do you think that the link between uh, energy access and, and climate finance has been made properly?
2: I think there's a lot more to be done. And even just thinking about CDC, we certainly got involved in decentralized energy from an energy access perspective but i think increasingly over the last couple of years we are viewing it through the climate lens as well so i do think that there's more work to be done to um, you know bring climate focused investors into um, into the decentralized energy space mm-hmm. and i agree with maite in that you know it may be a question of designing the right sort of products because you know there's a lot of money they're looking for assets and there aren't enough assets and so if we can come up with the right product to attract that money then um then that could be quite powerful and again it goes back to you know sort of a lot of the questions around profitability and subsidy and things like that Mm -hmm. again if you can mobilize um corporate investment in, you know, credits of whatever form that could create a new revenue stream that could support profitability or allow companies to, um, to address new markets that otherwise might not be attractive.
0: I hear you, and, and I hope that, that uh, yeah, that we can attract so much more. Um, and I have a, a last one, a last uh, reflection, and it, it goes uh, to financial innovation that we're seeing. Um, So do you think that SPVs and securitization are a key step um, for off-grid solar so that companies can indeed focus serving consumers and there's financial institutions taking on that financial
1: risk? I think this is a debatable one, (laughs) right? Jeff and I have spoken multiple times about this one. (laughs) And I think uh, there is a space for both. There are companies that are ready to continue providing financing. Some of the larger players, they have already set up their platforms and develop the required knowledge. But the second generation, I mean, they focus in the distribution mainly, right? So for them, the cost of capital is still quite high to provide the financing to uh, the clients. Uh, and that is where they're struggling. So I think that if we are able to capture uh, an off-balance vehicle that work, but the question is, how does it work, and how do you determine that it's the right vehicle and the right structure? Uh, and this is something that we don't have there yet, 100%. And uh, right, decide like who is going to service those receivables, who is going to service the customers in something happen. How are you going to collect? Who is responsible for credit analysis, right? So there's a lot of questions that, for me, the best you know possible way will be that in a few years everything is off balance sheet, and you know that you have multiple of balance sheet vehicles that can take receivables from different companies. But we're still far away from that. And I think that we probably need to move towards that. But I think there is room for both.
2: So this is one of my <laughs> favorite topics. <laughs> and if I can sort of shamelessly plug a paper that we worked on with CGAP uh, a couple of years ago called Taming the Strange Beasts. We mm-hmm. explored pay-as-you-go business models and some of the financing options associated with that, including off-balance sheet structures. And we, we set out some views. and. Um, I think I agree with Maite, there are a number of different ways that um, we could go about essentially decoupling the financing piece of the value chain mm-hmm. from the distribution and 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 sales aspect of it. But I think you have to be very careful about how you do it. And there, the issues that I think we've had historically with um, SPV structures of securitization is that it's very complicated, it's very expensive. In some jurisdictions in Africa, it's, um, it's not really possible to do that. Um, and so you need real scale, I think, in order for that model to make sense. I do think there are a couple of companies now that are achieving the type of scale that warrants that type of approach. But again, as Maite mentioned, you need backup servicing, and I think that's a gap in the market right now, and one that you know we've been you know kind of harping on um, over and over. And I think we've seen some progress in that there are a number of people that are taking this issue seriously now and trying to develop solutions. I'm not sure if we're completely there yet, but um, But I think, you know, that's an area that we continue to want to work on with the industry more broadly to develop solutions, because I do think that if you can put in the right infrastructure around SPV structures, it can be a powerful tool. The other model that I find really interesting is, you know, again, going back to commercial banks or microfinance institutions, and we talked about them providing finance directly to the companies, but there's also a model where they could... Provide finance directly to the consumers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can imagine partnerships between, say, a local bank or an MFI and a pay as you go company where the bank is taking the ultimate, is essentially making the pay go loan to the customer. And the company is then just responsible for sales and maintenance and servicing. And, you know, you can um, tie together, given, you know, that all of this is is based on, you know, sort of cloud-based systems where you can have real-time access to what's happening across a portfolio of assets. I think that, you know, you can do integrations between banks and pay-as-you-go players to make that model viable. And I think that's another one that could be very powerful for the industry in the future. But we're obviously a ways off from that.
1: Um, but it's one that we can help as DFIs, I think. Uh, this is one of the key that they they're not there yet because of course the still, you know, they, the risk perception is still high. But they, we have had quite a few quite a few discussions with different players in different markets. Um, you know, we're trying to develop products for that, specifically, right? And how we can collaborate in co-financing or through guarantees or different products to try to bring them to the sector by taking the receivables. From these companies,
2: hundred percent. Because I think yeah. it's
1: a, all the of risk and the type of guarantees that they require. So that's that's where we have to overcome.
0: Interesting and, and and unfortunately we're nearing the end of the of the podcast. So I think I've, I've done this before um, in another podcast, but I would really like to to take out your crystal ball and uh, ask you, uh, yeah, where you see the sector in the upcoming years. And uh, so it's two things where you see the sector and are you optimistic uh, that we're achieving um, universal energy access uh, by 2030?
1: Um, do you want to go, Jeff? I mean, this one is tough one sometimes. Yeah, I'm,
2: I'm, I'm happy to start. I mean, I guess starting with your last question first. Um, unfortunately, you know, in all honesty, I don't think we're going to achieve SDG 7. Mm-hmm. but i'm optimistic and confident that we can make a significant dent and real progress so i think that you know we shouldn't we shouldn't let that dissuade us or discourage us from doing everything that we can um but i do think it's going to be it's going to be hard to achieve and i think you know, there are potentially, you know, in the near term, some uh, some turbulence in the market. I think, you know, we can't underestimate the COVID crisis that is continuing to play out um, in our markets. Um, and that, you know, that is very real. And I think it will be a drag on the sector and a challenge for the sector, um, you know, probably for a few years to come. But Longer term, I am optimistic. I think Mm -hmm. what I kind of envisage is, you know, some of the elements that we were talking about around value chain decoupling. Uh, So I think, you know, there are some interesting trends developing. One, I think as Maite mentioned, is the emergence of more local distribution focused companies. Mm-hmm. that are not trying to manufacture their own systems or develop their own proprietary um you know back-end systems crm systems um, but they're leveraging those of of larger players and focusing on distribution and so i think that is going to be the way to expand geographically mm-hmm. and take advantage of local knowledge and um a- and roll out and and scale up in new markets I think um, along those same lines, you know, starting to see some interesting convergence again around the CRM platforms Mm -hmm. and interoperability. So I think that's a really interesting trend that would allow um, for more standardization across across those Mm -hmm. elements and, you know, again, would uh, allow decoupling to happen more. And then I think we could see, you know, sort of more at the manufacturing end. I think we could see consolidation and, um, you know, a few key players, because I do think that scale is important at that end of the business. And so I think we may see in a healthy way, fewer companies that are actually designing and manufacturing systems and more companies that are leveraging those um, manufacturing platforms and focusing on on distribution or other discrete parts of the value chain. And I hope that the finance piece will be part of that. I would love to see banks and microfinance um, institutions getting more involved in financing the end users. Well,
1: I think um, good to know that I'm not the only pessimistic one in that sense, but yes, I don't think we're <laughs> going to achieve the 2030 targets, but they always say aim high. And at least you will try. If you aim too low, you will not do anything, right? So we need to aim as high as we can. It's similar to the 2015 net zero. We don't know if it's going to happen, but if we don't try. So we need to focus in continuing working in the sector, right, and to find solutions. Uh, and and that, as I think, is the central part. And I think that now we're in the right path. Uh, I agree with the turbulence uh, we have just learned over the last two years that, you know, covid uh, uh, viruses, because at the end of the day, we have COVID-19, but we might have another COVID-23, 24, we don't know, right? So it's mm-hmm. we're going to see more turbulence in the coming years, uh, or even, uh, you know, not only COVID, but as well, even of uh, climate uh, aspect. But I think as well, I mean, I'm focusing as well on the decoupling. I think uh, the second generation companies, uh, that is as well an area where FMO is investing in sort of through mm-hmm. venture capital. Uh we feel that yes, let's focus companies focusing on the distribution what they know. Let's you know, create knowledge and to focus on what they're good at. We don't need to have fifteen different types of batteries or fifteen different types of TVs. You know, a TV is a TV, so just have three, four manufacturers that provide these systems, you know, decrease the cost because at the end of the day what we want is to decrease the cost to so that invest in technology and innovation and let's kind of decoupling as much as we can and see how we can see the sector evolving and you know, less the financing focus for the financiers. Although having said that, we know that there are some companies that are becoming quite large already. And another area that I see is diversification. I think that some of the distribution companies to survive, they will have to diversify. It's not only, you know the, the distribution network is quite expensive and to make sure that it's profitable, they need to probably pro- diversify into different products.
0: Thank you so much, Geoffrey, Maite. It's been a great pleasure to have you and to have your contributions. I have learned a lot. I found this really insightful. And my takeaway would be that we should aim high and we can achieve anything we want as a sector. We have strong entrepreneurs, we have strong investors and backers like yourselves, and we'll get there. Thank you so much.